0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. From the time of Adam and Eve, we have fallen into selfishness and self-centeredness. This selfishness and self-centeredness is what we call sin, and its consequences are suffering and death. We all experience it. We know it when we see it, and when we see it in others, we uh, react to it uh, through violence. We uh, want tyranny and we want uh, war to make people do what is right, what we think that they're supposed to do. It's our natural inclination to try to force things upon others. That is our response to sin when we see it. God's response is so radically different. God's response to sin is to give us his own son, our savior Jesus Christ, to love us, to transform us, to be born as one of us, to remake not only us, but all of creation. He does this uh, in many different ways through salvation history. Uh, He brings his nation of Israel up out of the wilderness, and he does it through this uh, Passover feast. And he tells the nation of Israel to remember the Passover, to keep that feast every year at the appointed time. And of course, like everything else the Lord tells them to do, they don't do it. Uh, He gives them the feast of Pentecost to celebrate the giving of the law. And uh, these feasts are kept Uh, By the time that Jesus comes and is born, the nation of Israel is um, under persecution and they are feeling it greatly and they are keeping the Passover and the Feast of Pentecost. And it's at these uh, times that the Lord comes and appears and uh, that Jesus chooses to offer himself as the Passover lamb and uh, the choice of the Father to bring the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And so we are not wiping away the Feast of Ancient Israel, we're not wiping away that calendar, but we're fulfilling it and acting in it as the Christian church. That calendar is essential to our understanding salvation history and for our practicing it and living in this process of salvation that the Lord uh, brings about through the power of His Holy Spirit. So the keeping of the calendar is essential to Christian practice and life. We've kept the calendar at the start of the new year with Advent. We've prepared for Christ's coming. We've cleaned our homes. We've cleaned our hearts and our minds. We've prepared for his being born. We celebrated his birth in the 12 days of Christmas, and we kept that feast and celebrated God becoming man so that man might become one with God. And then yesterday we celebrated his manifesting himself, his making himself known to the Gentiles. He first makes himself known to this remnant of ancient Israel, to Mary and Joseph, to Elizabeth and Zechariah, to, to, uh, you know, the prophetess Anna. And, uh, And now he has made himself known to the Gentiles, these magi, these wise men, these men of the The ancient east that see the appearing of the star, that know the prophecies of the prophet Daniel, and who recognize them and come, and the Lord appears to them. The way of salvation has been opened to the nations, to all people, to the Gentiles. He has appeared, He has manifested. They have had an epiphany, an awakening, an understanding of the coming of God. Another way that the Lord appears, that He manifests Himself, is through His baptism. This is his public declaration of his ministry. We read in the Acts of the Apostles when it's time to replace the traitor Judas that they are looking for someone who has walked with Jesus since the time of his baptism. This is the Apostles' understanding of the beginning of his ministry, when his public ministry has begun, and so his baptism is this opening to uh, God making the world anew. It is not... Uh, surprising that when he does this, when he manifests himself, he manifests himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as the Trinity. Some people have suggested that a Trinitarian understanding is some kind of an evolution, that it's some kind of a new understanding, that Christians came to a new understanding. But God has always been known as Trinity. There's only one way to really perceive of God, and that is as Trinity. There's no way to understand God um, without the Trinity. For him to say, let us, Right at the beginning of Genesis, he says, let us. He's thinking, he is reflecting, he is preparing to act, and there's no way to do that as just a subject. A subject who perceives, who thinks, always has to have an object. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are reflecting among themselves, considering and discussing among themselves as the Holy Trinity. The subject has to have an object. They have to be in conversation. And they say in conversation, in this holy unity, let us create, right? Let us create. And so the prophet Isaiah, 800 years before Christ is born, says what? He says, behold my servant whom I uphold. Who is speaking there? That's the father. The father is saying, I behold. I behold who? my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Who's that? That's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the servant of God, right? I, the Father, behold, my chosen, the Son, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, the Holy Spirit. So here in Isaiah 42, verse 1, we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit declared 800 years before the time of Christ the only way that God can be understood. And what is he doing? He is saying that I will bring forth justice to the nations. He says he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Justice is the gift of God. It is the gift of himself. Everybody knows what justice is even though nobody has seen it. We've never seen it. You've never pointed to the courts and seen it. You've never pointed to the law and seen it. None of us have ever seen justice, and yet we know that it is a good thing that our hearts yearn for and desire, and everybody yearns for it. This is something to remind those who claim to be atheists, who claim to be uh, enemies of revelation, right? that don't think that there is a revelation from God or that there is an image in which all mankind has been made. Even those that, that reject God know justice. They rail against injustice, yet they've never seen it. And they hunger for it, and God is the only one who can bring it because he is the only one who is good. He's the only one that is just. He is the only one who doesn't depend upon another, who doesn't depend upon someone else. He's the only one who can provide it, and he says that he will. He says, I will take you by the hand and keep you. He says to open the eyes of the blind, and he will make all things new. And he fulfills this promise he fulfills the giving of justice he fulfills the making of all things new in the person of our lord and savior jesus christ jesus of nazareth who is god become man so that man might become one with god and he is declared by the last of the ancient prophets john the baptist john the baptist is the perfect, the perfection the fulfillment of all those ancient prophets who have gone before, and he declares repentance. He calls the people to the River Jordan, this great crossing between the wilderness and between the promised land. He stands at that passage between wilderness of sin and the promise of God, and he says, come and be here and cross into the righteousness of God. He calls them to repent to do this, and he says, God will make all things new, and he says he will do that by his son, and then John says, and that's him. He points to the person of Jesus and he says, this is the one who I've been telling you about. This is the one that I've been proclaiming. And Christ comes into the River Jordan. He comes into that crossing place and he descends into the waters of baptism. But his baptism is so unlike any other baptism. Where we are washed with sin, he has no sin. When we need to be made new, he is always new. But Christ takes... Humanity. He takes all of creation upon himself as he joined his divinity to our humanity in the womb of the Virgin. He takes all of creation with him under the waters of baptism. He pulls all things down with him under that water. And when he rises up out of the waters of baptism, he brings us and all of creation with him. And he brings us up into newness of life, washed and made clean, ready for the peace and the love of God. And when he does this, A voice is heard from heaven, behold my Son in whom I am well pleased. Now we have seen the Son descend into the waters, we have heard the voice of the Father, and then the crowd that is assembled is receiving an epiphany. They have a new understanding, they see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, not a dove, but the best description they have is someone like a dove descending upon Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are made known, are manifested, appear, are an epiphany to the assembled crowd, and they know now that God has fulfilled the promise that he has made from old. He has cleansed all the waters of creation. The water that each and every one of us was baptized in was made clean and new by Christ when he rose out of those waters. All the water of creation. Every drop of water of baptism that we have received was cleansed and blessed by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what do we do? What should our response be? It seemed as if things were going to go along much as they had until Peter, fasting and praying in Joppa, receives a vision. This radical vision... You'll remember in the Acts of the Apostles of these animals descending on this great tablecloth, and the Lord says, rise up and eat, Peter says, Lord, please, I can't. And he tells him three times, rise up and eat, and he perceives that something new is happening. And a messenger appears at the door and says, Cornelius, this Gentile centurion calls you to his home, and he at the very same time, Peter realizes Had a vision of God at the same time that Peter did, saying, Send for Peter, the apostle of Jesus, to tell you what has happened. And Peter goes to Cornelius' house. This is a vision of God. This is a miracle that has happened. And when Peter realizes that it's a miracle, he says, Oh, now I understand. Now I understand. It's important for us to understand that Peter, in no way without this vision of God, would have entered into Cornelius' house. This was absolutely forbidden for the Jews. It's very difficult for us to understand because we're such a pluralistic and tolerant society. We think, oh, this is like Italians and the Spanish mixing. No, this isn't like that at all. The Jews would never go into a Gentile's house because it would be an act of religion. Everything was religious in the ancient world. For a Gentile home, religion would be at the very heart of their house. At the very center of a Gentile house, there would be idols kept. Idols for the household and an idol for the genius of the paterfamilias, of the father of the household. His way of life, his way of thinking, his, his ethos would be represented in the very middle of the house, and everybody that came into it would burn incense to those idols. Every bit of food that was offered to a guest, which they were required to do, would be offered to an idol. So to enter into the home would be an act of worship. To receive any amount of food or any drop of water in the home would be an act of worship. There's no way a Jew would walk into a Gentile's house because they'd be worshiping idols to even walk across the door. And they were supposed to be set aside, not only through circumcision, but through every aspect of their life. They had made themselves clean and separate to worship God. They never would have entered into a gentile's home and then when peter sees this vision that cornelius receives and the vision that he had he says now i understand what's required to come into relationship with god that you fear him and do what's right at which point we should say what fear right we're supposed to fear what about these angels that say fear not see there's two kinds of fear there's the kind of fear that you fall down and you fall away where you, you, you fly, you run away, or you freeze, you stop from acting. And this is what happens to people when they see these angels, right? They fall down and they fall away. And they say, I'm not worthy, right? Like the prophets do, right? I'm not worthy, I'm a young man, right? Um, I can't do it. And the Lord says, fear not. In other words, be bold, be brave, be courageous, move forward, act. Then there's the kind of fear that makes us act, the kind of fear that propels us that gets us to do things that we're supposed to do. And that's a good kind of a fear when it's directed in the right way. We all experience it. When the angels say, fear not, have you ever had anybody say that to you, don't be afraid? Did that work for you? (laughs) Oh, never mind then. (laughs) Of course not, it doesn't work. And sometimes they talk about that in the church that as Christians, we're not supposed to be afraid. In other words, don't be a human being anymore. It's ridiculous. It's an entering in of Stoic and Epicurean philosophy into the church, this idea that we're supposed to be separate and we're not supposed to realize that the world is a real thing and we're supposed to see it as a fantasy and remove ourselves and not have emotion and response. That's not the human experience at all. We all have fears. We're afraid of our friends. We're afraid of being embarrassed by them or not having their approval. We're afraid of our families. We're afraid of not having their approval and affection. We're afraid of our bosses. We're afraid of losing our homes. And we're afraid of all kinds of things. And it motivates us every day, this fear. And nobody can tell you, don't be afraid. It doesn't work. There's one thing that does, though. Fear God. Because the fear of God to look to him to see what his ways are, to see his righteousness, to see his will, is the kind of fear that melts all those other fears away. The more that we reflect upon God, that we reflect upon his ways, that we perceive his life and his will, the more those other fears simply start to look like what they really are, which is not much. But the fear of God remains, which is a steadfast focus upon him and upon his righteousness. And that's what Cornelius had done. Cornelius had feared God. And through his fear, he fasted and prayed, and his faithfulness brought about not only the presence of the Holy Spirit, but a manifestation, an epiphany, appearing of God among the Gentile peoples that is a fear that we need to have a fear of God that's so powerful and so profound that our eyes are solely focused upon the Lord and his will so that when people see us they see a people who are focused and obedient upon the will of God and who are not afraid of anything else Because our fear is focused upon him who is holy, who is just, who is love. May God be manifest among us this day and forevermore. Amen.